Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host Rachel Park and I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. This is episode number three, recorded in August 2018, and today I talk with Diane Mackle. Di is a registered nurse who has worked in Wellington ICU as a staff nurse, associate charge nurse manager, and research nurse. She has worked in ICU clinical research since 2007 and currently is the ICU program manager at the Medical Research Institute of New Zealand based in Wellington. She is also a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria in Wellington and a recipient of a prestigious New Zealand Health Research Council Clinical Training Fellowship for her PhD in the Knowledge Translation of Oxygen Management in the Intensive Care. As well as this, she has three teenage children, loves cooking, reading, growing things and entertaining. And she's also a recent convert and zealot to e-mountain biking. In this episode, Di and I talk about translation of knowledge and how research can change clinical practice, choosing the A-team for supervision and keeping on track, and about finding support to help you achieve and find better work-life balance. Di finishes the interview with some really sage advice for those considering doing a PhD. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy the interview with Diane Mackle. Okay, so I'm here today with Diane Mackle. Di is a senior project manager currently at the Medical Research Institute in New Zealand. And we'll talk a little bit to Di today about how she's come to this point in her career and starting to to develop her own research career as well. Um, We're both here, we're really lucky. We're sitting in an amazing room at the Sofitel Hotel in Sydney today, where we're both attending the Winter Research Forum for the ANZIC Clinical Trials Group. So although we're both based in Wellington and (laughs) Auckland, uh, we're actually recording this podcast here today. So Di, thank you for catching up with me today. Um, And I thought we'd just start, I mean, how did you get into nursing? A couple of years ago. (laughs) A couple of years ago. Um, Well, funnily enough, uh, I didn't actually start as a nurse. I went to university for a year and didn't really know what I was doing and um, failed that first year and then decided at the end of it that I would do a three-year course in something where you became a something at the end (laughs) and, uh, and got accepted for nursing. So I went nursing. And where did you do your training? Um, In Christchurch. So it was the... I trained through Christchurch Polytech and it was the first year that, I think it was the last year of um, nurses training in the hospital, so we uh, trained sort of alongside them, so it was a bit of animosity actually, funnily enough, yeah, so kind of uh, just ended up in it in a way, it hadn't been a lifelong ambition, although I'd always been interested in things like anatomy and stuff like that. Mm. Mm. And then what did you do after your training? Did you move straight into ICU or have a bit of time in the wards? <laughs> um, it was a bit of a long trip for me. So I did, um, this, uh, I'd obviously qualified in Christchurch and then went to Wellington um, 
just wanted to try another city really and um, the ward that I was assigned to first of all was a geriatric ward which was horrible and then uh, I did my standard medical surgical and then went to London so um, did so by then I'd only been out about three years and uh, after my year in London uh, in the meantime I'd met my husband in New Zealand so that's why I was only away a year and uh, but working in the NHS in London and doing um, agency nursing actually put me off nursing <laughs> in a big way and I just didn't want to be a nurse so I did four years of um, office management and database uh, work, um, doing a lot like what I do now, monitoring actually, um, so quality control, and that was for a courier company, which was just someone I knew, yeah, and they were de- developing software, so yeah, operations management, that sort of thing, yeah, and so then I decided while I was doing that, that actually it wasn't important enough, uh, it wasn't about life and death and uh, went traveling for another year with my husband and then when I came back applied to ICU and started there in 1996. And been there pretty much ever since yeah. in a variety of roles too. Yeah. So tell us how did you move from staff nurse to into the research area? Yeah so when I started in the ICU there all I had was my diploma of nursing and so in the first year I was there, I um, did a Bachelor of Health Science to kind of get up to speed. And then, um, I can't exactly remember the sequence, but after a few years, we really three or four years, there was a big restructure and they brought in the role of Clinical Nurse Coordinator, which is the equivalent to a, an Associate Charge Nurse Manager. And um, I got one of those positions in, I think it was 1999. And... Um, and then uh, went on maternity leave in 2000. And so I'd gone staff nurse, basically ACNM, and then when I came back from my maternity leave, I was already pregnant again, so I decided <laughs> I could not carry on. You've been busy. <laughs> I couldn't justify being an ACNM when I knew I'd be leaving again, so I went back to being a staff nurse. And throughout that period, um, I got given projects, um, I think, uh, probably people recognised um, my unusual skill set with dealing with numbers and data um, and the clinical side of it. So I did projects with um, different intensivists and also um, the unit manager and people around the hospital doing data. Yeah. And then um, I think what actually got me into research in the end is I had a very significant injury. Uh, where I couldn't nurse and uh, uh, a very supportive medical director and nurse manager actually um, thought it would be a good idea if I did research the while I was on ACC recovering and I was also pregnant again at that time <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, yeah when I came back I ended up in a very small FTE research role yeah so kind of you know a bit of probably uh, stuff I was interested in and destined for and other stuff that was luck. Yeah. As it always is. Yeah, it often is, isn't it? Just sort yeah. of falling into those sorts of jobs yeah. or, you know, opportunities arising and seeing yeah. them and being able to take them at the time. Yeah, time and place, I yeah. think, is, you know, it's sort of how life goes, really. 
And then staying in that role for a number of years yeah. <laughs> um, before moving on to the Medical Research Institute of New Zealand, where you are now. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, so we did get this small FTE in the research roles. There was two of us and we did 0.35 FTE each. And um, we... Uh, became involved with the ANZIC CTG and did studies for them. We did have um, two doctors at that time who were very keen on research and so we did the odd pharma study and it was actually very challenging because we didn't have enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, just managed to stay in that position and establish a proper role. So prior to that we'd been seconded as staff nurses but we managed finally to get it recognised as a senior nurse role. and. Um, uh, that was really helpful, although mm-hmm. it, apart from the uh, recognition by staff that, that that it was something you were doing, <laughs> um, you know, I, I enjoyed the work anyway. It hadn't really bothered me yeah. too much, but I think it's important that people see it as a real role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, then during that time, I was also doing a postgrad diploma in health informatics which, you know, going back to the data was probably my first love. And, um, yeah, when I finished that, wanted to do a master's but didn't really know what to do it in. (laughs) I was going to ask you about your master's because I recall at the time you were (laughs) doing it. (laughs) Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you researched for your master's before we go on and talk about uh, the next (laughs) phase of the learning journey? Yeah. So, I mean, I did really struggle with the topic for my master's and I think there was at least two years in between finishing a postgrad diploma and doing going on to a master's. And um, I had really quite wanted to do it in health informatics, but just circumstances and funding and in a way pragmatism drove me to do a Master of Nursing because it was on site and I could get funding for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a, um, I'd, I decided once I knew I was doing a Master of Nursing that I would do a qualitative study because having worked in research um, doing clinical trials for quite a while by then, I just realised that um, I didn't know anything about qualitative, so mm. that's what drove me to do it. And so I actually did a um, study looking at the role of the research nurse in New Zealand and um, ended up interviewing 23 people, um, 11 research nurses, 6 charge nurse managers and 6 principal investigators from around the country. Um, and it just about killed me actually because qualitative is really difficult. Yeah. The coding and um, even transcribing is just just a mammoth task. But anyway, I did finish it and did quite well. And finally, after all these years, have finally published it. Congratulations! It's very exciting to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. often, um, you know, with our master's level papers and, and research, we often kind of finish and that's it, we walk away from it. Yeah, I think it's such a relief to finish that it's the last thing on your mind and your supervisors are always saying, oh, you know, you have to publish, but actually you just don't have the energy anymore. And um, consolidating an entire, so my thesis, I think it was close to, I think it was knocking 100,000 words because you're allowed to do that then. You wouldn't never get away mm. with that now. But um, uh, condensing that into a 3,000-word manuscript, I found that incredibly difficult. Mm. And by then I'd moved on to 
other projects with work so the time factor was also huge mm. um yeah so I think it's difficult and you uh just kind of mentally move on in a way yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah do you think because by the sounds of it you have quite a uh, numbers background, a very yeah. quantitative sort of background with the other jobs that you've done, and yet you chose to do a qualitative study for your master's. How did you go about developing those skills and, you know, learning yeah, <laughs> yeah. what you were to do? Um, I, uh, I mean, I had a very good supervisor for my master's who really um, helped me so much because I don't think... Well, I certainly didn't know what it would be like when I went into it. In fact, I do recall, because I already had the postgrad diploma, I remember saying to people, I'm just going to do a thesis and uh, then I'll be done. And of course, there's no such thing as just doing a thesis. Uh, yeah, it's four papers and two years. But um, yeah, so it was mainly through that nursing supervision. And I mean, obviously, um, I had learned about qualitative in a very superficial way through my postgrad diploma but mm. it really doesn't prepare you for the uh, just immense workload actually of coding mm. uh, I mean there's programs for it now but certainly then and I've heard still they prefer to hand code mm -hmm. your first project so yeah, I mean, your um, thesis was done at the time that, like you say, those programs were just developing. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, there was other things which I think would be easier now as well, like the voice recognition software. We bought some, actually, to see whether the um, interviews could be transcribed in that way. And, mm. and they just didn't have the capability and um, even writing the thesis. And actually with the transcribing, because I think... It, to me, it was about eight hours of typing for one hour of interview. Um, so that was a lot. Uh, so I applied for a grant and paid a transcriber in the end. Right, yeah. Because I just would still be doing it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. developing those funding streams is hugely important to be able oh, to yeah. support you, isn't it? Definitely. And, I mean, I got that funding through the uh, Victoria University Small Fund, okay, Small Something Fund, um, but I agree that doing that sort of research is is just virtually impossible without mm. some um, seed funding or mm. something small. You know, you don't really require a lot. You're doing most of the work in your own time, but having some support would make a huge difference. Mm. Do you think it's harder to try and obtain funding for a qualitative or or nursing type study as opposed to, you know, a large multi-centre randomised yeah. control trial. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Absolutely. I think um, uh, both those things. So in nursing is, I think, more difficult to get funding. Uh, it's more difficult to get a track record. Uh, you, uh, you know, you end up having, oh, it's difficult to do on your own. You need mm. to collaborate. Um, and getting nursing uh, funding for qualitative as well. Um, perhaps has changed a little bit over time. I think there's a lot more recognition um, of the depth of data you get, but generally mm. speaking, it's definitely considered the, um, I suppose, country cousin. It's not as highly regarded by... Um, uh, I don't like to say academics because I know nursing academics actually favour mm. it, but, um, you know, in the world of research... It's, 
um, probably not as considered um, as important as randomized control trials. Well, it's not considered <laughs> as important as randomized control trials, mm. for example. That's interesting. When we're trying to describe our patients' experiences and journeys with yeah. us in the intensive care, we sort of still tend to use numbers to yeah. describe it in terms of surveys or questionnaires or scales to you know, try yeah. and identify things that are going wrong with them. How could we maybe incorporate um, some qualitative research into our yeah. trials, do you think? I mean, it's a million-dollar question, really, isn't it? Because I think... Uh, I definitely think there's growing recognition that that's important. Um, I mean, one of the reasons for using quantitative is um, it is easy to analyse and it gives you a an answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas with qualitative, you get that depth, um, uh, which would be more reflective of patients' experiences. Um, I don't know how we develop it. I think there's a, a bit of work going on where it's part of a bigger mm-hmm. study, and I think that's really valuable. And I do actually think even using, um, you know, people doing academic work like their masters and PhDs, you know, it's a good opportunity mm-hmm. to have a smaller project um, attached to a larger one, probably to get this sort of information as well as mm-hmm. it while it grows and recognition, but. Yeah, it's definitely a numbers-dominated world we live in. <laughs> it is. Maybe that's uh, partly the sort of ICU slant of yeah, what we do. I think it probably is. And, it, you know, it's quite a medicalised um, model that mm. we live in. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're part of it, actually. Yeah. Both of us. So, yes. <laughs> I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but, you know, if you're mm. looking from the outside, I think that's what you'd think. Mm. Mm. And yeah. I think often you sort of have that bent don't you sort yeah. of often it's a bit like being a medical yeah. nurse or a surgical yeah, nurse yeah. that you're sort of often a quantitative researcher yeah, or a qualitative I, I and yeah yeah and I knew I always knew I was more quantitative always um, numbers has always been my thing yeah can't fight it no it's got to go with it <laughs> So I guess that brings us possibly on to talking about your PhD, which you're currently studying mm-hmm. uh, and undertaking. So when did you start doing that and how did that sort of leap into that come about? Um, yeah, one of those decisions you look back on and go, wow, how did I get here? Um, so, I mean, I was doing a lot of work um, uh, at the Medical Research Institute where um, I could see other people were getting their PhDs and I, I thought, well, you know, I'm doing the work anyway, maybe I could get a PhD. And I had always, it was always in the back of my mind, really. And uh, so in June of uh, 2017, I put in a a grant application to the Health Research Council for a um, clinical training fellowship. And um, so it was very, the idea was very quickly developed, with, certainly within a month. Um, you know, I'd thought, thought about doing a PhD and still struggled with the topic. Ideas has always been my problem. Um, and then uh, came up with it uh, with the help of Paul Young, um, who uh, is the investigator for the chief investigator for a lot of studies who I work with, um, and so then I very quickly wrote the grant 
and submitted it. So basically pulled together the whole study within a very short period of time. And um, I kind of said at the time, if I didn't get funding, I wouldn't do my PhD because I couldn't live through the experience of I'd had as doing a master's with small children and um, doing it in my own time again. Mm. Thought that would probably finish me off. Um, on reflection, I probably would have done my PhD at some point, but maybe not right there and then, um, mm. because where I work is very supportive of people studying. Um, yeah, and so in October, I actually uh, got the HRC fellowship, mm. which was. Um, really uh, fantastic actually and um, as you know Eileen and Auckland also got one so mm. two ICU nurses oh. out of eight of the grants that year uh, two of them were appointed to ICU nurses which I think is really fantastic. Oh it's an outstanding achievement and um, you know I guess for a lot of people who are listening to this they will have no idea what it means no, <laughs> no. Um, but it's a very prestigious uh, award to have received and so tell us, how does it actually help you with your PhD? How does it support you along the sure. way? So the um, Clinical Training Fellowship Grant um, covers your salary and any expense. Well, there is a finite amount. I think it's 250000 New Zealand dollars. But the idea of it is that it covers your salary for three full-time years and pays your tuition fees. So you can actually theoretically do a PhD as your work um, and not have to spend any money. So um, it's a very significant um, uh, financial contribution. But on top of that, you know, it's also recognition that you may have a career as a researcher. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic in a couple of different ways, really. Yeah. 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 And be able to support your time and, yeah. you know, not take away from your family time as yeah. well, perhaps. And, yeah, and so you can get a much better work-life balance, I think, just with that financial support. Mm. Um, and so for me, my grant is uh, is uh, administered by the Medical Research Institution, so um, they pay my salary as they normally would, and that's kind of backfilled with the grant. Mm. And I've elected to do it over four years, so um, 0.75 of my time is about my PhD or, you know, about that training fellowship, so developing skills and Mm. that sort of thing as well as doing the studies. Yeah. And is that enough time, do you think, for what you're trying to do? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There's never enough time in the day. And as with all studies, you know, there's, uh, it's hugely variable what the workload is, so... Um, I uh, the beginning is always very very busy mm-hmm. um, and that was definitely the case for me um, and then the end is always busy yeah. so uh, yeah in the middle it's probably all right but at both ends it's probably not quite enough <laughs> yeah so do you want to tell us a little bit about what your project is for your PhD and so possibly you know what your research question is and then the study design yep so um I guess I should start by saying that I was already going to be the project manager for a big um, randomized controlled trial called ICU rocks 
So that was a trial um, aiming to look at oxygen management in in the intensive care unit in mechanically ventilated patients. And so patients were randomised to either conservative care, which was, I guess, in essence, just to get the oxygen down to room air as quickly as possible, um, using an algorithm, and um, comparing that to standard care, which at the time we started we knew was quite liberal. We knew that from the observational studies that have been done. And so um, it's, you know, it's quite a significant study in the world of ICU. It's the results are highly anticipated mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's something that may change the landscape, I suppose, with oxygen therapy. And so my study for my PhD is based around that trial. So what I'm looking at is whether, I, well, my research question is, um, does ICU participation, I suppose it should be, does participation as an ICU in a research trial such as ICU Rocks make a difference to using the knowledge that's created from that trial? So it's really seeing whether um, ICUs which participate in research are more likely to use research findings. And um, so just by way of background, I suppose, I've always been quite interested in seeing where the research is used Mm. Um, and um, my impression has always been that that in ICU we do use it very quickly and I come from an ICU which changes practice overnight on the basis of landmark publications literally overnight I mean I've been involved in studies where that's happened Mm. so um, that's my view of the world but the literature says that's not the case everywhere um, there's all sorts of barriers to using research or it's really evidence-based medicine and mm. practice. Um, so what my study is aiming to look at is whether being in research it makes you more likely to use it. Um, and so with regards to the methods, um, conducting three studies. So this is a study over time. Um, So I'm looking at practices and um, attitudes about oxygen before the ICU-ROX trial started. And again, after it finishes, so the sites who are in ICU-ROX have been exposed to that conservative Mm -hmm. idea and um, doing the study protocol. And then uh, looking at once again after we publish to see whether publication alone makes any difference or without dissemination strategy. And so, obviously, there's two groups of ICUs. Half of them, there's 11 of them, are involved in ICU rocks, mm-hmm. and the other half aren't. So, that I'm hoping, you know, we can compare those two. And I might find, we don't know the ICU rocks results, so there might be <laughs> nothing to change. I don't know whether things would change irrespective, because people are now mm-hmm. very keen, it seems, anecdotally, on conservative oxygen therapy. Um, and also... You know, both of us are involved in ICU research and we know that even those sites who weren't in the ICU ROX trial are highly exposed to the idea of using research. Mm. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to know if there is any difference. And kind of as a, um, I suppose, looking at it more globally, I'm also doing a retrospective cohort study, um, which is using existing data out of Australia and New Zealand and also the UK, which will show whether there's any change in oxygen use from the beginning of them recording to and looking at 
um, things like the ICROX trial being published and seeing whether um, oxygen use changes after that. And because it's set in the UK as well, we hopefully might be able to see if geographical distance to the knowledge creation makes any difference. Mm. So that's using existing data yeah. that's routinely collected in the ICOs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so unfortunately the two databases uh, collect different data, um, but that's of okay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> they do both collect the data about oxygen. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so there's no site involvement in that, everyone. Uh, we will just use that existing data mm. with permission, obviously. Yeah, so I'm hoping the combination of those three studies so the attitudes, the practices, and this retrospective cohort study will um, show us something. But you never <laughs> something. know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So how have you gone around uh, about collecting your sites or your you know, clinician oh. participants for the clinician survey? Yeah. So obviously the um, ICROX sites were very easy to get on board Um Almost all of them agreed to do the, my little study and there's a lot for them. You know, it's not much more work actually than being in a big study, mm-hmm. a big trial. Um, and um, so that wasn't very difficult actually. Um, but I had a lot of help to get the non-ICROC sites. And one of the decisions that was made when we were doing site selection for ICROCs was because it was being managed in Australia as well um, by the ANZAC Research Centre, they sort of had to make a pragmatic decision about which states could be in the study in ICROX um, based on which sites had offered to do the pilot study because um, it's just very expensive and difficult mon- monitoring in particular across you know all the states in Australia. So... Um, it was kind of pragmatic and, uh, you know, really unfortunate for those mm. sites who would have really loved to participate in the ICU Rocks trial. And so they kind of got the consolation prize of, <laughs> I'm sorry, but would you like to be in this um, small yeah. observational <laughs> study? Um, and I've had so much help from research coordinators um, in particular. And um, actually Victoria Bennett, who was the original Australian project manager, helped with a huge amount as well. Um, and um, Natalie Linky, who's the um, current project manager, has also helped. Um, but Victoria already knew a lot of those research mm. coordinators in Australia, so um, she uh, sort of pointed me in the right direction and I even approached them for me. Um, but, yeah, just tremendous support, really. I can't even describe it. New South Wales in particular... It was a really big state. They would have loved to be in ICU rocks, all those sites, mm. um, and they couldn't be, but they all have really come on board. And, you know, smaller places like Launceston and mm. um, Tasmania, Canberra, and, um, you know, just really fantastic yeah. support. I think it's a real testament to how you can do such a big project uh, with, you know, basically no funding yeah. <laughs> to the sites because you're not providing them with any sort of form of um, study participation fee or or yeah. anything like that. Um, so I think it's great to be able to show people that you can do that. Yeah, I think so. And I think being part of the um, CTG is 
you know, it is great like that. It's very collegial and we talk a lot about so-called love jobs where we do things for nothing um, and we've all done them and then other people do them for us. Mm. And I mean, you obviously don't want to be doing, that's not a good model, but I think for small and PhD things, mm. it's okay. Mm. Um, it's that sort of pack mentality, isn't it? That yeah, I'll do yours yeah, if you yeah. do mine. And yeah, and... To get off the ground, sometimes that's what you have to do. Um, and, yeah, I think people are also really keen to know the answer, mm-hmm. which, um, yeah, I think is also a testament to just how much people um, value research in the ICU mm-hmm. community. Well, certainly ICU researchers. I don't know whether the rest of ICU is like that, and we won't know for a while. Um, and... Yeah, so each of the research coordinators at each ICU um, actually uh, identified people to participate in the practitioner attitude survey. Um, I went around and asked people if they would do it. And um, so we asked for, I asked for five to ten doctors and five to ten nurses from each site. And some sites got loads and others not so much. You know, that's the way it is with surveys. Um but, yeah, so they um, did that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in New Zealand, most of the New Zealand sites were in ICU rocks, but um, there's a couple who weren't. And they um, were fantastic. They came on board straight away and offered to do it for mm-hmm. me. And It's a great starting point of, you know, yeah. being involved in some research. And... Yeah, really great. So, um, yeah, I don't want to just, like, keep going on about how grateful I am, but I'm very grateful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's really important and it's... Um, you know, nice if we can't give anything else back to our participants. Yeah. <laughs> we can give our thanks as a koha and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, we have, I don't know whether it's worth giving a small amount of funding or none in a way, but we've, um, the MRINZ is, is paying a small amount for the inception cohort study, which is the um, looking at practices side of it. Mm. But, you know, it's very nominal and all we know that it doesn't cover costs of staff, but yeah hopefully it's something some recognition that people have helped mm. yeah so you've just completing the second survey round yes yeah so um obviously we had to do the um practices and attitudes before icrox started icrox is now finished um they finished recruitment in may and so once that reached 28 days after that which was the time of our primary endpoint then I went in and um, asked people to redo the survey mm-hmm. and um, the research coordinators to redo the um, inception cohort study and most of those are done, yeah. Cool, so one more round to go sometime. Yeah, yeah <laughs> sometime. I'm trying to think of a way to keep people um, on the books because mm-hmm. one of the things I've learned already, even though it's been a really short period of time, less than a year, um, is how many people have left already. Um, even though they thought they weren't when they went and particularly yeah. did the survey. So uh, that's going to be a challenge for me in the future. And um, just being here at, this, at the winter meeting has been great to talk to the research coordinators, especially from Australia, because I see all the New Zealand ones <laughs> anyway. But, you know, how can we, um, you know, how will I manage to keep those people mm. who did the first survey completing the surveys over time? Yeah, so that's really helpful talking to everyone. Yeah, it must be difficult. You know, we work in an area where there is a fairly high staff yeah. turnover. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah, any <laughs> tips in terms of how <laughs> to retain your study participants? I don't know, but I am, I, one of the things I've definitely decided is to make regular contact. Mm-hmm. So maybe every three months, just let them know where I'm up to. Um, uh, I got a couple of surveys done after my talk yesterday, <laughs> so that was good. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm going to have to think of something. Yeah. Um, because these are not people in the research team; these mm-hmm. are people on the floor, nurses on the floor, and specialist ICU doctors. So the doctors tend to move a bit less often, but nurses move a lot. Yeah. So I just have to try and track them down. Mm. Oh, it's a really interesting point and certainly something for people who might be thinking of developing this sort of, you know, more maybe knowledge translation Mm. type research activities that you may need to consider if you're, you know, doing a longitudinal (laughs) study. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I naively thought that although this was over time, it was over a short enough time Mm that I wouldn't have had a problem and now you know even within six months I realized that I could potentially have a problem Mm. yeah so um that's okay so long as you know you've got a problem then you can uh, address it yeah (laughs) yeah but absolutely because I I wouldn't have thought of that I just thought oh yeah that'll work out It'll be interesting to see if there's any, um, and I don't know whether you can assess it or plan to assess it, whether there's any sort of geographical uh, differences in terms yeah. of uh, staff turnover. and. Yeah, I mean, then I guess the numbers are too small to draw too many conclusions. But one of the things I found out straight away when I sent out an email saying I will be sending the second survey, was someone came straight back and said, what if you're not nice ICU you anymore? which I had not thought of at all. Um, so obviously I still want those people to mm. carry on, but I had to add in quickly, amend my survey to say, are you still in ICU? Um, and surprisingly, there's a few who are not. Mm. But yeah, that's, you know, it makes it a bit more generalisable, doesn't it? Oh, it'll be great in your discussion section. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the things I didn't think of. <laughs> Yeah. So are you planning on doing um, a traditional thesis or a thesis with publications? How are you sort of structuring your outputs? Yeah, so um, at Victoria University, they don't, hmm, maybe they do. I don't know that publication uh, thesis by publication is an option for me, um, but obviously I will be publishing um, throughout the um, period of my PhD. So I anticipate publishing each of the three studies individually. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, even if I can't include the publication as such into a thesis, you know, essentially that would be the format in the thesis. So, yeah, it's sort of similar, I suppose. Um, I'm meeting my nursing supervisor next week um, because I understand she has an idea possibly talking about knowledge translation versus implementation science. Okay. Um, one of the other things I probably didn't realise going into my thesis is that these uh, all these terms we hear like um, translating research into practice, evidence-based medicine, knowledge translation, um, implementation science are not all the same thing. Yeah, so mm. yeah, so I'm slowly getting a handle on the academic side of 
um, all the theoretical frameworks of knowledge translation. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, you bring a very strong uh, research background to your own research mm. and therefore have a good idea of how to set up a study, how to run it, how to analyse it, how to complete it and all the rest of it. Um, how are you finding, you know, like you say, the academic side of it? <laughs> She's now got her head in her hands. <laughs> but how has that been, sort of moving into this more academic um, environment? And... Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I know my strength is in the things you say, setting out studies, writings, um, case report forms and data dictionaries and data cleaning is probably my biggest strength. Um but it is difficult for me. I find it challenging um, working uh, in the academic world. I find um, reading literature about um, that sort of thing more challenging. Um, but uh, at the same time, that's good because I want to find out more about knowledge translation. One of, I guess, my ultimate aims from this study is when we're thinking about research trials in the future, what can we do up front before we've done the research to make our findings more meaningful or um, more um, able to be used? Mm. Um, I feel quite strongly that we shouldn't be doing research that doesn't contribute. Um, in a minute, I don't think anyone does. Yeah. In the ICU forum, every study we publish as um, contributing um, either answer, you know, answering a question that we have. And I mean, we're mostly talking about things uh, with respect to standard care. So two people will do two different things and find out which one is better, or maybe there's no difference and it doesn't matter. Um, so I think, um, yeah, but I, I think using that research uh, you know, it's publicly funded money, it's patients who've made a, you know, just a huge contribution by being in our studies. Um, so, and I mean, we're very good at publishing in ICU. People do publish their findings, um, which is really great. Uh, I think not, I thought everyone did, but I don't think that's always the case. Um, yeah, so. Um, but I think it will be useful to know when we're designing studies what we should be thinking about mm. at the end. Mm. And how we might be able to either translate our results mm. into the clinical environment or into patient care. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, this is not just me. Every, you know, not everyone. Lots of people are looking at this question. Um, and, you know, amending guidelines um, mm. and that sort of thing, you know, to really just improve patient care and outcomes. Do you think we're a little bit slow on it in mm. New Zealand perhaps compared to other places in the world or do you think we're sort of keeping pace? I think it's probably underdone worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a knowledge translation, um, it was called a colloquium actually, so it's like a small <laughs> conference sort of around the table thing with about 100 people and uh, last year and one of the things I was really surprised to hear was that hospitals had knowledge translation departments. So they had um, people who would look at literature and you know update guidelines and use a process to get those guidelines used within the hospital. 
um, and some of those were in Australia. I mean, there weren't um, uh, that uh, colloquium wasn't um, wasn't ICU. It was all mm. clinical areas, um, and it was. I mean, I suppose you know, it's just the same as quality. You know, it's sort of similar. I suppose. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I don't. I'd be very surprised if anyone in New Zealand has that level of infrastructure when we know how difficult it is to get even a research infrastructure mm, mm. yeah so yeah I'm not sure if we're behind but I know it's um, knowledge translation is becoming more and more important yeah. to everyone so yeah I don't know maybe maybe it's the same everywhere <laughs> yeah. yeah quite possibly <laughs> yeah I know Canada's very big on it but yeah. you know they've put a lot of um literature out about knowledge translation and um from what i can see seem to do it very well Mm. um yeah we're definitely not at that level in new zealand possibly some of that comes back to your comments too around thinking of the end result when you're planning your trial um you know some places such as canada you're having to plan what your knowledge translation activities are when you're applying for your grants and funding and things like that so you know, it probably is a lot um, more in people's minds right I back at the so. beginning. Yeah, and um, I can't even remember where it is, but a certain percentage of your funding has to go into the knowledge mm-hmm. translation of a study that may well be Canada, Canada or the UK. Um, you know, so that really puts it mm-hmm. up front. And, um, and one of the things um, Ian Graham in Canada is big on is integrative um, knowledge translation which is kind of looking at the end user so mm-hmm. and I, I won't say too much because I've probably got it all wrong but um, so that would be things like what do patients want yeah. um, and I did talk to him actually and say you know that's kind of difficult in an intensive care environment because um, you know I'm not sure I mean you know I think it is important you know whether we know whether well, there are other I mean, we make assumptions about what they would rather. Um, but, yeah, perhaps the end user for us is more the doctors and nurses or the families. I don't know. But, yeah, certainly thinking about how it will be used. Mm. Now, it's yeah. an interesting point because we talk a lot about uh, designing trials to look at patient-centred endpoints. Yeah. Um, but we don't necessarily ask the patients what those endpoints should be. No. And so we may get it wrong sometimes, perhaps, do you think? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, mm. and I think when you've worked in intensive care for a long time, you realise that also what people anticipate they might want when it comes to the crunch is not necessarily the same mm. So it is a very difficult um, area, probably, to look at that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes what the patient wants may not be what the family wants. Yeah, it's just complicated. Complex. Complex, (laughs) yeah, let's leave it at that. So you mentioned, Di, about your nursing supervisors. So what sort of supervision team have you developed to get you across the line at the end? <laughs> well, I've put together the A team. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so um, I have gone back to the supervisor who I had for my master's degree and um, uh, I found her fantastic, Kathy Nelson. So um, she uh, brings to us a really fantastic knowledge about knowledge translation, mm-hmm. including the academic side of it, which is you know hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. 
to us ICU people um, with our numbers backgrounds. And um, she's also, I knew from my master's, would be good at keeping me on task. Um, she meets, we meet often and we're actually just over the corridor from one another from where I work. So that's, that's really handy. <laughs> really handy. Um, and so Richard Beasley is actually my primary investigator and he's the medical director or director, sorry, of Medical Research Institute and is very well published and supervised many, many PhD students. Um, so he brings to it that um, oversight, I suppose, of PhDs in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul Young is my third supervisor and um, he brings to it the clinical knowledge and he's also just completed a PhD in the last few years. So, um, uh, yeah, I think all of them bring wisdom in different ways. Mm. Yeah. And do you all sit down together as a group of four or do you meet with them separately? Or? Um, so what tends to happen is I meet with, Kathy, my nursing supervisor, more often. Um, and then every, uh, probably, it's probably worked out to be every two or three months, the four of us will get together and discuss things. Um, and if I have an issue, I'll email all, all of them. Um, and if I have a clinical question, I'll tend to go to Paul. Um, and uh, so it does seem to work quite well mm. so far. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah I think having someone keep me on task is really useful (laughs) I think that's one of the great expectations of a student of their supervisor isn't it it probably is (laughs) I don't know I I did go to um, because at Vic you have to go to an orientation half day when you take on a PhD and um, they were talking about how that turns around later on as the student becomes the expert in their field I'm saying, man, I can't imagine that happening, but oh well. One day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, one day you'll have that light bulb moment and you'll suddenly oh, think, so. oh, I just told them something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you start challenging decisions or, you know, they might say something and I'm like, sometimes you go, oh, I don't agree with that or I read something mm. else or, but I'm not quite at that stage yet. <laughs> Getting there. <laughs> yeah. And so do you um, sort of have an agenda for your meetings? Do you kind of make it up as you go along, depending on what everyone's needs are on the day? Or Yeah, I suppose um, so far, in a way, we've been a bit task-driven. Um, so there have been... I do have a timeline of what I um, should be working on at time, different times, and I've written that, and they've agreed with it. Um but there's definitely things that are time critical. So uh, at the beginning, you know, ethics is time critical, um, developing the survey, developing the CRE for the um, observational study were all time critical. So things like writing up a theoretical framework, you know, then takes a back seat. So um, we haven't really had agendas up until now but I guess we're moving into that time mm-hmm. where you know the bulk of the things you know the studies themselves are underway but now I need to be working on writing so yeah I think we will start having agendas yeah 
And do you have any plans around your writing? Because like you say, that's kind of the next step. <laughs> Head in hands again. Yeah. Um, What's the plan to tackle that aspect of it? Um, so I have started a little bit of writing. Um, and um, uh, yes, there is a plan to tackle it. So I realised that I was spending more time with my work than my thesis for a while and so we agreed that I could work one or two days at home. Um, that hasn't really happened so much um, and I actually am finding it that I can sometimes focus on my thesis at work mm. and there are other places around um, the hospital where MRI and Z is based where I could go and work um, but yeah I think um, having you kind of need to find a day or two days that are solid thesis because in a position like mine you just get pulled into other mm. things every single day um, and it's hard to switch between those two things especially if you're reading articles and you know doing your literature and that sort of thing so um, I don't think I've found the perfect solution yet um, and um, I mean I have had this challenge writing and getting accepted my research proposal to advance from provisional to full so that has taken up much of the last three months yeah um which has put my timeline behind um but you know you have to do what you have to do at a time and once that is approved then i'll settle back into getting a routine mm -hmm. good luck with the writing yeah it's... thank you <laughs> <laughs> So I guess as a more mature student mm. too, um, you know, you're split and pulled in many different directions because there's work, there's study and there's home. Yeah. <laughs> and as we've heard, you, you know, have had baby, baby, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how do you kind of separate out all three and ensure yeah. that you're looked after at the end of the day as well? Yeah, so I think I think it is a real challenge um, for everyone because everyone has families mm. and um, things they want to do that aren't work or thesis. Um, so there have been times when I've had to work uh, the weekends as well as during the week to get jobs done, um, in particular for my thesis. So I realised um, probably two or three months ago that that couldn't go on forever because it's very exhausting. Um, and you just feel like you're missing out. And that's exactly what it was like doing my master's. So I have been determined to mm. not let it get to that again. So um, one of the things I've been doing lately is I no longer take stuff home. Um, and so that's the slight um, difficulty I'm having at the moment about do I do the thesis at home and my work at work or do I leave everything at work so that I don't try and do it at home? Um, so I haven't quite got that sorted, but yeah, what I have been doing is leaving my laptop and everything else at work now. So, so no work going home, definitely. No. <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes you have to. So if you've got presentations to write, you really will end up doing that in your own time. And if you've got a deadline, you will mm. end up working at the weekend. Um, but on the whole, I do try and have the weekend off. Mm. Um and uh, I think that's been good. And um, one of the reasons I think that's come about even more is I bike to work now. And so I don't want to carry my laptop and my articles <laughs> back and forth. So um, 
those two things have coincided quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah. Often it's finding that sort of convenient excuse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I was sometimes finding I'd take stuff home and then it hadn't even come out of my bag all weekend because I, but then it's hanging over you because you think you should be doing it. Um, so I'm trying to put a stop to that because mm. it's just too, it's fine. Yeah. It's very easy to get into the habit of doing stuff all the time and never having any downtime. Mm. Mm. And so the babies are now teenagers. The babies well are teenagers, <laughs> which is really lovely. And, um, you know, they're a bit more independent. Um, they still want you around. Mm. Um, what do they think of mum doing a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. I'd always thought it was a good example I was setting, but um, one of them said when I was, uh, probably a couple of years ago so I'd finished my master's and that sort of got the impression it was easy for me and they could never aspire to that because I was so that was an unexpected thing because I thought they might think it was a good thing um yeah the, my kids are pretty laid back actually they uh, uh they've been brought up by both parents equally so they're kind of pretty flexible if I'm there or not or if yeah, um, if my husband's looking after them. And, yeah, I mean, our weekends are pretty busy because they all play sport and um, have things on. But, yeah, they're pretty, uh, yeah, they're, I don't think they think too much about it. No. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be happy to be there at the graduation ceremony and go out for dinner. <laughs> I don't know if they will. For my master's ceremony, which is actually the only graduation I've been to, they um, uh, sat in the front row so they could see me. And then as soon as I um, had done my bit, they disappeared. So they didn't want to sit there <laughs> no, and watch everybody else. They're very long, those graduation <laughs> ceremonies. And I think the, the um, PhDs might be at the end of yeah. the Victoria ones. So. Maybe they can just come in late. Come late. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've sat through a few school things myself. Yeah. So. yeah, I'm sure you can remind them of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what about your husband? I mean, obviously having support at home is yeah. hugely important. It's really important. And I don't know how people do it without that. Um, so, uh, yeah, my husband does a, a lot of things. For the family, you know, so transporting kids, you know, getting kids to school, making their lunches. Um, we tag team a lot. Mm. Um, he uh, is on shift work at the moment, so he um, is there if I'm not. Um, yeah, so he's hugely supportive. But you know, over the last couple of years, as our youngest is, um, he's now fourteen. Um, you know, so he now be left but so we are trying to get back into our own lives mm. um yeah so what sorts of things do you like to do outside of work <laughs> I it doesn't sound so there's much time but. there isn't much time actually i love um socializing actually and we do a lot of that and um reading uh so i've read a book club and biking so uh, we go mountain biking when we can mm. and um, yeah just I sometimes don't know what we do we've been renovating a house for about the last 
almost 20 years, so that takes up a bit of time. So longer than a PhD? Longer than a PhD. <laughs> Hopefully they'll finish at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Any yeah. good book tips from book club? Oh, 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 do you actually read books at book club? Oh, we do. Book club? Oh, okay. <laughs> we do. Actually, the couple that I've just read are um, Robert Galbraith, who is actually J.K. Rowling, and okay. um, so she's written under a pseudonym so that she can write these um, mystery thriller type um, books that are for adults about a guy called, and I'm going to say it wrong, Cormoran Strike, who is a detective. Yeah. Um, so they've been really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just read those. Um, we read a huge variety of books in our book club. Um, and it's been going since my second baby was born. So she's 16 now. Um, and yes, there it does always involve wine and food as well as books. <laughs> yeah, I have to say our book club gave up on the books <laughs> a long time ago. A lot of people <laughs> do, yeah. I must say, over the years, as we've all had babies or different challenges, sometimes uh, you turn up and no one's actually read anything. But yeah, yeah. Uh, as they get older, we're all reading more and more again now. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a support group too, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Oh, it's fantastic, actually. Mm. And we actually, the topics we get <laughs> onto are just crazy yeah Mm. so yeah I don't really know what I do in between days just go they do yeah Yeah. so any top tips for anyone thinking of doing a PhD what would you advise (laughs) (laughs) I would advise thinking carefully actually just you know make sure um, I suppose you know what it is you are doing um, I definitely think um, people should apply for funding. Yeah. I think people might be surprised that they can get funding, even if it's a small amount. Um, and uh, I think you told me this actually, Rachel, do something you love yep. because you'll be a long time doing it. Yep. <laughs> um, and I would definitely agree with yeah. that. Uh, you know, it would be a long time if it wasn't your topic or if you didn't find it interesting yeah I think that's really important because you're really um you know you're living it and you're going to be an expert on it at the end and so yeah I think yeah love what you're doing really Mm. Mm. that's very good advice Mm. and probably a good sort of finishing point for our talk today Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. I feel you. like I've done all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the cunning plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. And um, enjoy the rest of the meeting here in Sydney. The oh, sunshine's come yeah. out today. It's quite nice. stunning out there. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for your time and good luck with your PhD. We'll all be following your journey and look forward to reading the papers and the final thesis. So, mm-hmm. well done. Thanks, Rachel. Cool. Thanks, Di. I hope you enjoyed that. Di and I had a great time talking and it was fascinating hearing her talk about her career path and what she's doing for her PhD research. Can't wait to hear her results surrounding the implementation of the results of the ICU ROC study into practice in the participating ICUs. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. If you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? 
and would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. But until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.